leadership literature, as uh, I mentioned before, highlights the power of humility and the pitfalls of pride. Humility, these authors say, is the key ingredient to succeeding in the task of leadership. And, and uh, you know, we can think of our own life experience, whether in the home or at work, that indeed this is true. I mean, just think about how you feel when working underneath someone who is sinfully proud, who is not willing to listen, who is determined to go his own way, someone who thinks that everything is up to him or her. All that weight is on that person's shoulders. Did you know that the Bible, which was written thousands of years before uh, you know, the leadership literature of today, the Bible too speaks of the benefits of humility and not just for leaders... But for everyone, as the Bible says that everyone, even the greatest leaders of the world, are a people under God's sovereign authority. In the book of Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we saw that Pharaoh, even though he was a man under God's sovereign authority, did not listen to anyone but himself. He even went so far as to set himself, the greatest earthly king, the greatest earthly power, he set himself directly against God, the sovereign creator. Elohim is his name according to Hebrew in Genesis 1.1. Remember in Exodus that God is determined to form for himself a new people in holiness. And he does this by growing the people of Israel and then delivering them out of Egypt where they were under slavery, under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh wanted nothing, he wanted nothing of that. But he only wanted to control Israel for his own purposes. He is a leader who does not understand and he's a man under authority. He's a proud man. But what's interesting in the book of Exodus, and I invite you to turn there with me now, is that while Pharaoh is a proud man, so is the chosen leader of the people of Israel. So is Moses. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, which can be found on page 46 if you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you, it shows that Moses too in his sin is a man who will not listen to God. He insists on doing his own thing, and he struggles to listen to God, and he thinks that everything, too, is up to him. And he refuses God, all the while cloaked in a false humility. So you see there, Pharaoh is a proud man, but so is Moses. This comparison and contrast between these two leaders makes for an interesting start in the book of Exodus, doesn't it? If we didn't know so much about the story, we might get sort of get on the edge of our seats wondering, you know, how in the world is this going to be pulled off as these chapters unfold? I mean, you have Pharaoh who refuses to bend the knee to God, and then you have Moses who apparently does the same, at least for a little while. This is a disaster waiting to happen. But thank God that he, in fact, is God, the sovereign God, and he makes everything work out for his glory and his people's good. Last week we saw that Moses has a compassionate and strong heart, even though he is a sinner. He commits a sin of what appears to be murder, as he defends a Hebrew slave from a slave driver. And today we see more of his sin. He is a proud man. And from these chapters, we see that Moses is an unlikely deliverer of God's people. And we see that success in fulfilling God's call, and this is applicable to, to Moses, it's applicable to you, Success in fulfilling God's call is not dependent on the servant, but on the sovereign. Success in fulfilling God's call is not dependent on the servant, but on the sovereign. That's sort of the big main point of today. 
We can look at point number one here, the sovereign's call. There's three points. The second, by the way, is the longest, uh, so you can hunger down for that, I suppose. Point number one, the sovereign's call. Here's the, we can look at the setting there in chapter 3, verse 1. Moses here is tending Jethro, his father-in-law's flock, and eventually he makes his way to Horeb, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Mount Sinai is going to play a very important uh, role in the life of Israel. And the reason he's there, not in Egypt, you remember at the end of chapter 2, Moses is no longer in Egypt. Though he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and though he grew up in Pharaoh's house, he no longer experiences the blessings of Pharaoh's house. And so at the end of chapter 2, Pharaoh wants to kill Moses for siding with the Hebrews instead of Pharaoh himself, his adopted father, his, his country, so to speak. He's not identifying with the Egyptians any longer. Moses, at the end of chapter 2, has started a new life in a place called Midian. He has a new wife, he has a new baby, he has a new job. And in three one, he's on the countryside tending sheep. And while this situation has drastically changed for him, we know that it is not good. But we know that God is busy bringing about character transformation and making him into a leader of God's people. As chapter 3 opens, God the sovereign king draws near and gives Moses a task. This is his call. Look at verse 2 there. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. This is a spectacular sight indeed. Of course, as this is unfolding, keep in mind here, Moses does not know that this is God, that this is the angel of the Lord. Elsewhere, the angel of the Lord is referred to as uh, mediating God himself or described to mediate God himself. Here, he just thinks it's, it's a bush that's not burning. Like, what's up with that? And so he continues. He wants to investigate. We can ask the question, you know, what's up with the fire? You know, why does, why does God choose to, to mediate himself to God in, this, in the fire? If we were to go on and read more about Exodus, we learn that God uses fire to represent his holy presence among his people. So later on, if you follow us through the book of Exodus, we know that Israel leaves Egypt in, with a pillar of cloud, God's manifestation, his presence, and also a pillar of fire. Exodus 24, 17, speaking again of this fire, when all Israel gathers back at this mountain that he is at, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, God reveals himself again, and the verse says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. That's the glory of God being manifested to the people. So in this burning bush, we have the glory of God appearing to the man, Moses. Verses 4 to 6, look there. When the, Lord, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, that is God, said, do not come near, take off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You notice here that his self-disclosure from God begins with God declaring who he is. The self-disclosure begins with God declaring who he is. And you need to think about yourself in terms of self-disclosure. I mean, what you reveal about yourself is important, especially as you're revealing to other people. The information that you give to the people that you meet 
is oftentimes what you want them to hold on to. And sometimes, you know, maybe you, I'm sure we know other people too, who, who go on to do this, disclosing information about themselves, maybe in like an odd sort of a proud way. You know, maybe they want us all to hold on to how much money they make or what they do is for a profession or how old they are, whatever. But we understand that self-disclosure, who we are, the information that we give is important. And here in verse 6, what is it that God wants Moses to hold on to? The fact that God is what? Here it is the God of the covenant and the God of covenant faithfulness. That's what he wants Moses to hold on to. This is the reason why actually, you know, God's covenant faithfulness, the fact that he is the God of the covenant. This is why God actually shows up to Moses. It is to deliver his covenant people according to his covenant faithfulness. And take note here, God is not only described to be caring, but we see that he is actually a God who cares. We have descriptions, right? So you can turn over to Exodus chapter 2. We have a description of what God is doing. Uh, go ahead and look there at chapter 2, 23 to 25. It says there, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. But frankly, if this is all we have, let's just, let's just say it, it is in God's word in and of itself. Is that, if this description is all we have, you know, frankly, I'm not all that impressed. I'm not all that impressed if someone merely just describes to me what God is or who he is like according to here he's a god who hears a god who remembers a god who sees a god who knows but it's when we come to genesis chapter 3 or sorry exodus chapter 3 that the descriptions become all the more uh telling to who this god is and it takes on so much more meaning as i'm sure you might know maybe perhaps somebody has described themselves to be someone to you and then they turn out to actually not be that person given what they do but here God's description becomes the, so much more of a true reality in what he does. Of course, chapter 2 and chapter 3 are meant to be read together here. <clears throat> but you look there at what God does in, in verse 4. Or, sorry, not verse 4, but in verse 7. <clears throat> you see there that it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because they're of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, but then get this, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and then to bring them into the land that he promised them. So you see here, God not only describes himself, but he backs up his descriptions with evidence that he is an all-caring God. He is a compassionate God, the God of the covenant. What's the evidence there in verse 7? He sees the affliction, he has compassion on his people. He hears their cries, he knows their sufferings, and then he does something about it. He comes down to deliver. It's not just a description, but a description backed up by real action. He has compassion on his covenant people, and so he acts to fulfill his covenant promises. Second display of his uh, covenant compassion there in verse 8. God comes down to deliver them to go up out of that land. And then two, a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land full of cattle 
a land full of produce. So you, here we're, we're reminded of God's covenant promises that he made to Abraham. That he would make out of Abraham a numerous people, as numerous as the stars are in the sky. He promises that he would bring them up into their own land, the land of Canaan, a very fruitful land. And then he promises them that one from Abraham's line would one day be a blessing to the world. And we know from Galatians, once again, that this is fulfilled in Jesus. So you look there, promise one, a multitude, a people, fulfilled. 400 plus years after uh, the people go down to, to Egypt, now they are over, Most some scholars say, uh, on the low side here, we're looking at over a million. On the high side, when they come out of, the, when they come out of Egypt, some scholars put it at three million people. <clears throat> promise number two, the land. Well, look here, God is working to fulfill his covenant promises. And then we know that promise three ultimately happens and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. With verse nine, Moses knows that God is bringing to fulfillment his plans to deliver his people. Imagine Moses there in front of the burning bush. God is promising him to do what he has promised already. You can imagine the rejoicing that is going on in Moses' heart at the very least. He, he might think, you know, finally, freedom from our oppressors. All of us, all of the, the Hebrew people that I identify with now, as I am one of them, we all get to go into our own land of plenty, the land of Canaan. And as Moses rejoices in his heart, you can just picture this, maybe he's doing like the cabbage patch dance or whatever dance you associate with rejoicing. But imagine that the record stops and is thrown off the, 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 the record here when God drops this bomb on him in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is incredibly complicated for Moses. It goes, I think, if I were Moses, it would go from, from rejoicing to then uh, the transition to verse 10 there, all of a sudden, frankly, great fear. You remember that there's a number of problems with this solution that God proposes. Uh, the problem is that Pharaoh wants to kill him. There's probably a bounty still on his head. Then there's the problem and the challenge of leading over a million people. You know, I can, uh, by God's grace, I can barely continue leading the, the six of, of my family. There's the problem of leading all those without an escape route, without chariots of war, without an armory of weapons. But regardless, Moses has been called by the sovereign creator, God. Point number one, that's the call, the call of the servant. Let's see now how Moses receives this call. Point number two, the sovereign servant. And here, this section takes up verses 311 to 417. 311 to 417. So naturally, just like I'm sure you all can identify, naturally Moses fears. And he throws up these objections to God, not just one objection, not just two objections, but three objections from 311, 4, 1, and 410. And if you want to you know, mark up your Bibles, uh, you can highlight those or underline those. Let's just go ahead and read them. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 4, 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And then 4.10, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. You know, a brief summary of these objections here. You know what he's doing. He's predicting success 
in the task, in the call, based on his own authority, his own power, his own ability. What determines success in his own mind is his own authority, his own power, and his own ability. This is pride. The puff your chest out pride says, in fact, it's all about me. I don't need you guys. Well, so does the pride of false humility. As we see from Moses' objections here, Moses makes the exodus all about him, doesn't he? But like his own forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he too needs to learn to walk by faith and not by sight, not by what he sees in himself. You, you ever base your, the success of your own call, let's say God's call on your life, to evangelize your boss? Think of your boss. Think of evangelizing your boss right now. You ever think of th- that uh, your success on God's call in your life to evangelize your boss, your family, your neighbors? And then you find yourself throwing up all sorts of excuses that revolve really around you? Your lack of authority that you think you, you don't have? Your own ability or inability or your lack of knowledge on Maybe all the answers to uh, their questions regarding apologetics or creation or all sorts of stuff. Uh, If that's you, then you can identify with Moses' fear and even his false humility, even his pride. Let's look at Moses' fears and objections in turn. Number one, Moses fears he lacks authority. Look at 3.11 again. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I, a lowly shepherd, to go to the king of Egypt and lead all these people out? Who am I to lead all of these million plus people? So just think here about your own objections that you throw up in the face of the godly challenge to evangelize, to stand for Christ, maybe even to help teach here in this church even. And you might say, me? No, 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 no. Who am I to do this? It's sort of like the first gut reaction response we can throw up, the objection. Oh, you know, certainly I'm not qualified. Concerning Moses and God here, I picture a really funny scene. Imagine God, the sovereign king of heaven. He draws near to the man Moses and reveals the secrets of the heavens. The plan of redemption that he had hatched before creation. This is who I am, he says. The God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is according to my steadfast love that your people have been preserved over the last 400 plus years. I have seen your affliction. I have heard your groaning. And now I have come down to deliver you. This is God sitting Moses down in his situation room, so to speak. Casting vision, right? For the deliverance of God's covenant people, according to God's covenant love and the strength of God's power. So imagine the scene. God is bringing up the battle plan on the screen with a flick of the wrist. And he lays out the plan of action. This is what I'm going to do. Deliverance for you guys. Justice for you all. Mighty works by my power. And you, this is what I want you to do. You go into Pharaoh and we're going to tell him and it'll be great. And there cowers Moses. Uncertain. Wait. But who am I? And as we, the readers, we want to say, are you not paying attention, Moses? There is a bush that is not burning, that is blazing, and it's talking to you. Are you not paying attention? And Moses here, he's so 
tripped up with who he is not, that he no longer sees who God is, his preoccupation with himself. And what he lacks, genuinely lacks, stops him from seeing who God is and the authority that he possesses to accomplish all things. Christian, you know what trips us up in fulfilling our part in God's salvation plan that he himself has given us, assigned to us? It's doubting our authority. Now, let me be clear. In and of ourselves, we have zero authority. Zero authority. And the messages that spring from our own hearts, from our own wisdom, is the equivalent of, you know, another all the other YouTube ads that you guys see, that you can toss it or leave it. But with God, the church possesses all authority. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in my divine name, making disciples for my sake, for my glory. Did not Jesus, who who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, give his authority and make sure that the church knows that it is present with them to the ends of the earth so that we, therefore, are to claim his authority and not our own? This is complete authority in Jesus' name. I'm sure if you know yourself, if you're like me, You know that we speak of the gospel truths as if it's a message like all the others. All the infomercials and you think, you know, I can't compete. I can't compete with what they're thinking. And so our confidence in Christ is whittled down really because we're preoccupied with ourselves. Friends, this is not confidence or this is not the confidence that having a sovereign God should inspire. It was not the confidence Moses had. Moses had the backing of all authority in heaven and earth. The glory of the Lord was displayed to him. And it just doesn't seem to be enough. Let's look at God's response here. God responds in a kind way. He plays the part of Captain Obvious, defender of the things known, already revealed. He plays this part to Moses here who needs reassurance. In verse 12 he says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And here he's not just talking about companionship, though it certainly includes companionship. It involves God pledging everything he has to him, to Moses. He says, look, Moses, I will be with you. Do you want to see my unlimited power? Do you want to see my stockpile of spiritual weapons? Do you want to see all of my briefings that came from my own research that contain infinite wisdom and knowledge All of them for you at your disposal. And yet Moses still struggles. Look what he says there in verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses' question here reveals a lot about his outlook and perhaps a lot about Israel's outlook. The question suggests actually that Israel has kind of adopted Egypt's Worldview, their polytheistic worldview, uh, that is the worship of many gods. He basically says, look, because the people acknowledge all sorts of gods, Israel, possibly, who shall I say sent me? And it appears that a knowledge of the God of their father seems to be a distant memory. You know, in Egypt, there were gods upon gods. There were gods of this specific location. Gods of such and such a power. There were gods of this task. There were gods of childbirth. And then you had the hierarchy of all those gods where some were higher and many were lower. 
And so Moses is kind of asking God for his specialty. What are you over, God? What special place do you dwell in? In short, Moses asks God for his CV to hand to the Israelites, to hand eventually to the Egyptians, so that the people can compare him and his specialty to all the other gods. You basically anticipate the response from the one and only true God. God's answer there in verse 14 both answers Moses' question and at the same time sort of disregards it. At the same time, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He says, look, you want to tell them a name? What specialty? Moses, tell them I am he who is. I am he who is and was and always will be. And besides me, Moses, there is no other God. I and I alone am. I am is not like the God of the sun, not like the God of the Nile River, not like the God of childbirth. I am God, the only one. The name Yahweh here in Hebrew, which is what it is when it's I am, it's play on the words I am. Every time you see the word Lord in all capitals in your Old Testament, that's how you know the Hebrew uses the word Yahweh. And that's how English translators designate the title Yahweh as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, keep that name in mind, but remember back to Genesis chapter 1-1. We know there that it says, in the beginning, God, the Hebrew name there is Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the name Elohim is used here too. God said to Moses, Elohim said to Moses, so there, the, the, the divine name, Elohim, creator, God, sovereign over all things, sovereign over everything, you and me included. But then he uses a different name, Yahweh, the name that God says he will be remembered by all generations. We see how intent God is to be known as the God of the covenant through all generations, 14 Verses 14 and 15, if you notice there, it isn't just the word Yahweh that Moses is to relay. It's not just a description, but it is Yahweh, the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Tell them that that God, I am, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's the name Moses is to go into. Oh, go into, back to Egypt with... First to the people of Israel, then to Pharaoh and Egypt, because the great I am sends Moses. Therefore, verse 18, the Israelites will listen to your voice, God says. And Moses and the elders of Israel are eventually to go to Pharaoh, 18 again, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And then in verses 19 to 22, it's like God the general, having established who he is, goes back, right, to the big screen where his battle plan is. And he goes back to epic mode. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. Now remember here, Moses still behind God, looking at what God's going to do. God is casting vision. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. 
And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Friends, you realize, Christian, you realize that God's epic plan to see his church built involves you going out with the gospel in the authority of Jesus Christ. I pray it would never be said of you. I pray others would never say of you. I didn't believe that Christ had claim on my life because he himself did not either. And we can do that even in the, in, in the authority in which we go. Is it authority that Christ has given us or, or not? Or are we recommending this or are we actually speaking with the recognition that Christ has given his presence and his authority until the ends of the earth to bind and to loose, to preach the gospel, see people saved, trusting, laying all of their hopes on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to receive grace upon grace. Christ calls us as Christians to speak the truth of others and to call them to repent and believe, recognizing that it is authoritative in our lives as well. That the gospel has claims on our lives. Unfortunately, Moses is still ruled by fear. And so he throws up his second objection. Here's the second objection. And here Moses fears the people's response. You know, you just imagine your own fears if somebody asks you to do something that you're a little timid towards. And you say, oh, you know, me, certainly not. And then maybe there's a little bit of a go back and forth. And then maybe your next objection that will sort of silence the person that's asking. You say, oh, they, they don't really care. They're not, they don't respond to me anyways. That's what's going on here. Look at four one. They will not believe me or listen to me. And they'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. He seems to be a classic warrior. Imprisoned by future possibilities that aren't in his control. And so he's paralyzed. He fails to live with courage and faith in the now because of future possibilities that aren't even in his control. It's clear Moses, because of fear, struggles to keep up with God in the situation room. God is already on to the Exodus. I will stretch out my hand, perform wonders, then I'll give you favor in their eyes and you will plunder their captors. But Moses is still worrying. He He has to back the conversation way up. Not just to plundering the Egyptians where God is. Not to, uh, to the miracles that he has to perform. Not to the response of the people of Israel. but uh, Sorry, to the response to the, of the Egyptians. But to the response of the Israelites. He has to back up God. Whoa, God. Let's start way over here. I find this to be an encouragement. I think this should be an encouragement to all of us. The issue at this point is not whether God will come through. That's not Moses' issue. It is not Israel's lack of faith. The issue here is the lack of faith by Israel's future leader. So again here, in God's kindness, he has given us someone that we can identify with. In convincing the people of Israel to leave Egypt, God has to convince Moses that the response of those called by God is not up to him. It's not his responsibility. As we know that he who calls is the one who saves. From 4, 2 to 9, God gives Moses three signs or miracles that verify God's word and his power. He gives Moses these signs compelling enough 
for, for uh, all the people to believe. And they point again to the sovereignty of God over all things. He is Elohim, the God who created over all. He is God who also who is with us. But then here it's very much the same type, basically, of response that God gives. He shows him that he is first sovereign over all creation, inanimate creation as well. He tells Moses, look, take that staff that's in your hand, your shepherd's crook. Throw it down. I'm going to turn it into a snake. Moses freaks out. He's scared. And then God eventually has him pick him back up and it turns it back into a rod. Second, God shows Moses that he's sovereign over his created people. God makes Moses sick. He tells him, look, take your hands, stick it in your cloak, and then pull it out. It's leprous. He says, okay, Moses, stick it back in. He pulls, sticks it in, and pulls it back out, and then he's healed. The third thing, God shows Moses that God is sovereign over the natural elements. He tells Moses, look, in the future, you're going to take water from the Nile, you're going to pour it out, and it's going to become blood. And there, that was significant because the Egyptians thought that the Nile was kind of the heart of the deity. You could think of it that way. The heart of all of Egypt was the Nile. And even God shows, look, I got power over that. Sovereign over inanimate creation. Sovereign over his created people. Sovereign over the natural elements. Now today, it seems in God's divine providence that he's not having us work miracles like Moses did or Paul did or Jesus did. But nevertheless, the point of God's sovereignty is the same. And so, therefore, to say that we can't evangelize, or no, not me, because, you know, we don't, they, they don't respond to me well anyways. Says that's not a legitimate response. It's not a legitimate excuse, because the results of our God-ordained efforts don't depend on us. The success does not depend on us, but on God. That's why, therefore, we only need to be faithful to the task that God himself gave us. Think about Romans 8. Those whom he predestines, he also calls. And those whom he calls, he also justifies. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. So in that passage, who is the one acting to save? It is God. Therefore, we must be faithful to the task that he himself, our sovereign God, has given us. And therefore, bring the good news to those around us, pointing people back uh, to the greatest miracle ever. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ to new life. That's the sign that we as Christians point people back to his death for sin, his resurrection to new life. That's the sign sufficient enough to bring those called by God to salvation in Christ. But yet Moses still has his objections. After first doubting his own authority and then second doubting the reception he's going to have with others, he thirdly doubts his own ability or lack thereof. So first is authority, he doubts. Second is the response he's going to have with his listeners. And then thirdly, he doubts his ability or lack of. Look there, 410. Moses says, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Again, Moses thinks that success is determined by the servant's abilities, his own strength, his own ability. Forget the authority of the sovereign king. Forget the king's sovereign message that has claims on his life and everybody else's life. Forget that the people's response lies with God himself. He says there, God's plan only succeeds if his people reach a certain level of eloquence. If they only have, as we might think of today, uh, a certain amount of degrees. And God's response can't be any clearer. Look at God's sovereignty proclaimed in verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who made, makes him mute 
or deaf, or seeing, or blind, is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. Here Moses struggles so much to get God's sovereignty, the fact that God will do it, and therefore I only need to be faithful and do what he has commanded me to do. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. And here, this is just brings us back to the first objection, and God's first answer, right? I will be with you. You know, there's an amazing parallel here with Moses in the apostles of Jesus Christ. Think all the way to the New Testament here. And here the apostles stand as, as uh, leaders for us. Luke 12, 11 to 22. Jesus says this, And when they bring you before the synagogues, he's speaking to the disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Well, why is that? For the Holy Spirit, the sovereign spirit, and we know this from John chapter 3, the spirit blows wherever he determines and the spirit takes what is Jesus's and gives it to the church. He says, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now again, we are not Moses, we are not apostles, but how many of you, how many of you all go about evangelizing and even preparing to evangelize, so learning how to share the truths of the gospel, trusting that God is with your mouths, that He is with your brain, and that He is with your heart to give you courage, to let you act in faith, and just to speak the gospel truths. That's why I think it's so helpful when, when apologists, they just straight out come, come out and say, look, you know, I can give you apologetic answers to all sorts of things, the existence of God, but at the end of the day, we want to take the word of God and give it to the people. Because that is what saves. You could give, a, you could give a, a five evidences for, for there to be a God. And yet that might not be what saves. It is the word of God that God says that does not return void. And so here we, we're just encouraged to preach it. And so is Moses as he brings this message of the sovereign God. And when we remember that, that authority in heaven and earth is with our mouths, our feeble mouths, our incapable mouths, our stumbling mouths, our mouths that are not eloquent, then we share, we understand in the strength of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God, the power of the Spirit, the power of the Gospel to bring about the salvation of the Church. When we are preoccupied with God and all that he is and all that he promises to do to gather the church from the ends of the earth to the fame of his great name, then we forget about ourselves. And it's not about us. We come to true humility, recognizing God's sovereign power and our inability. And say, along with Paul, that God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. His power is made perfect. In our weakness. And therefore we can trust in God to produce the results. And pray that he would do so. With boldness and confidence. But unfortunately Moses. In this last episode at least. Is not our example. He insists on basing the success of God's plan. On his own ability. Look at there. Chapter 4 verse 13. He just frankly says. Send someone else. Such a different response than let's say Isaiah. Who says, here I am, send me in the face of the glory of God. Here in the face of the glory of God, Moses just says, send somebody else. 
And look at verse 14. It says there that God's anger was kindled. But let's be clear, God is angered because Moses thinks and feels that God does not have what it takes to deliver his people out of Egypt. That, at the end of the day, is his issue. He does not think that God has what it takes to deliver his people out of Egypt. Christian, do you think that God has what it takes to bring about the salvation of his people? And so, therefore, you evangelize? Let me encourage you to trust in God's sovereign power by trusting in God's engineered methods of growing his church. This is how the thing itself works. He engineers the way in which the church grows. And and here it, it, it grows just through the speaking of the gospel to others and calling them to turn from their sins and believe. And calling other people to do so with urgency and in the authority of Jesus Christ. Going in God's authority in his ordained method of speaking his truth, in love, and then entrusting the results to him. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a believer, I want to be clear here. The Bible says that we do not convert people. The Bible says that the gospel and the spirit, God himself is who converts people. This is why Christians are not to take up the sword and compel conversions. And threaten beheadings if they do not so-called convert. It's because, uh, or we do not do these things because we cannot. Salvation is the sovereign work of God. It's something that that uh, here distinguishes us from, let's say, Islam. Who thinks that conversions can be compelled by the sword. Well, Christianity does not believe that. We believe that the only thing that converts is the heralding of God's truth. The fact that God created you and me to be in a relationship with him. And a loving one there in the beginning of the Bible there. But yet that we had sinned against God and earned for ourselves just condemnation as we set ourselves directly against the only sovereign king. And in so doing, we sinned against God and earned his just punishment against us. But God in his grace and in his kindness, he's not a king that that flies off the handle. He's a compassionate king who reaches out to his rebels and extends his hand of grace and mercy in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so he sends his eternal son to take on flesh, to live a righteous life that we could not when we lived in sinful rebellion and earned just punishment and the wrath that we deserve. Christ takes that for us. He bears the wrath that we deserve, dies on the cross, and then is raised from the dead three days later, showing that the punishment that he made for everyone who repents and believes is done. By the sovereign authority of the king of all, mercy is extended in Jesus Christ. And so again, non-Christian, this is what we herald. God is a gracious, kind, and loving God, and we see that his love and his justice meet together in the cross where Christ died. Friends, this is why, if your friend has been telling you persistently about Jesus Christ and the gospel, you know, know that you have the freedom to say, look, can you just never ever speak about that again to me? Uh, and we can trust, we can say, okay, you know, if we have told you the gospel, you know, we do try and do so in love, and where we do so in, in a lack of kindness, we can say, you know, f- please forgive me uh, if this has been um, unkind and unloving according to the Bible, uh, and then we can just entrust there that God will work according to his own power. What a great relief we have, isn't it? That we can simply share the gospel and pray that God would work. Friends, that's why your friend 
persistently tells you this message because it comes with the divine authority from heaven. And, and so I tell you now, if you are visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and you will be saved and have a relationship with a God over all. A God who is with us. Which is seen so clearly in Jesus who takes on flesh to live with us, suffer at the hands of sinners, and even bear his sinful people's punishment. Christian, if you throw up objection after objection after objection, you know what's encouraging here? Is that God still uses Moses. He still uses Moses. A few verses down there. God appoints Moses, Moses' brother Aaron, to be Moses' spokesperson. So then he says, okay, Moses, you go. I'll give you the words. You give the words to Aaron. Aaron will give the words to the people. And together they are to deliver Israel. What is interesting, though, is that kind of, it seems like God gives Moses over to his desires, doesn't he? And we know how that works out at Mount Sinai when they come back as Aaron actually fails big time to lead the people rightly. <clears throat> as we've seen with other leaders of God's people, you know, we are all works in progress. While Moses clearly struggles to trust God, he is nevertheless remembered as a man of faith. So certainly there's this time of wrestling all these objections, uh, uh, this pride of false humility. But then in Hebrews, for example, he is to be remembered as a man of faith. That should be really encouraging for you, Christian. Because we might throw up our own objections too. But yet at the end of the day, God is in process with us, conforming us more into the image of his son, that we might believe in the truths that have power. Moses' faith is made clear in point number three. Here there's a turn. <clears throat> we see clear that there is a time for action, or the time of action has come. The time of action has come. This is Exodus four eighteen to 31. Eventually, after Moses had been back in Midian, God calls Moses to go back to Egypt. Look there in verse 21. And God tells him there to do the miracles that I have put in your power. Here, the time for deliverance has come. God has set his plan in motion, deliverance for the people of Israel and judgment for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And all of this according to his own word. So if you look at Genesis 15, 14, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 15, 14, God had already promised that he would go on and deliver the people out of, out of slavery and also judge the nation that enslaves his people. And so here he's just acting according to his promises. And in Exodus 22 to 23, as Moses is to go to Pharaoh, or sorry, verses 22 to 23, he is to proclaim God's judgment, and he's supposed to say there in verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Interesting, given that Pharaoh wanted to kill all the sons of the Hebrews. Here Israel is to say, or Moses say, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So there's the judgment, sobering judgment. Keep in mind, in relation to that judgment, Pharaoh sought to wipe out the Hebrew people through a, at least in the beginning, a quiet genocide by attempting to kill all the boy babies. Pharaoh wants to kill all the sons and eliminate the Hebrews. So in this coming judgment for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God then turns Pharaoh's own desires and actions intended for God's own people upon his own head. His own desires are turned upon his own head. But how Pharaoh will respond is clear. 3.19 says that Pharaoh 
will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In verses 24 to 31, we see two episodes of Moses' faithfulness. First, God tests Moses to see if he will lead his own family to live in God's covenant. God tests Moses to see if he will lead his own family to live in God's covenant. This is in verses 24 to 26. And here, by God's grace, Moses succeeds. And this is no small test, right? If you're to lead over a million people, you know, here it seems that God is testing Moses to see if he's going to lead his own family to worship God according to how God desires. And, you know, these verses can be a bit strange to us with all this talk of circumcision. You know, it can be a bit strange to us if we forget what is written in the book of Genesis. Remember there that God called Abraham. He gives him the promises there of land, people, and blessing. And, and even though God had already entered into covenant with Abraham, God still wanted Abraham to ratify things on his end or to go public, so to speak, with a covenant on his end. And he was to do this as God commanded him through circumcision, circumcising himself and every male intended or entering into the covenant. I think there it seems pretty clear. You know, you look down, let's say, in, in public baths, as was known to be common in the culture, and everybody sees, oh, you are of a different people. And all of those people are marked by a certain sign, the sign of the covenant here for everyone. Genesis seventeen fourteen says, God had let Ab- or there God had let Abraham know any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's the background to what is going on in these verses. God wants to see if Moses will lead his family into the covenant. If you look there in verse 25, it says there, Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Another way of reading this is that he touches uh, his, you can replace there Moses with his feet, uh, that is the son's feet there. So here he lives according to covenant faithfulness. He has his son uh, circumcised according to God's promises, and therefore he becomes a bridegroom of blood. Another way of saying he enters into covenant relationship. As one commentator, John Currid, he basically writes, this is a little microcosm of what will one day take place in the Passover, where blood is shed and God passes over. You notice there that it says in 26, so... He, that is God, let him alone. It's a little symbol, a microcosm of what's going to happen there in the Passover. Here we see that the word is declared. We see that there that the signs are performed. And we see there that the people believe in God is worshipped. We see this in the next one. The next, uh, the second act of Moses' faithfulness. He actually goes into the elders of Israel to do what God told him. Look there in 27 to 31. Just skim that and then... I'll read 30 to 31. It says there, Aaron spoke. Moses did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Once again, the word is declared, the signs are performed, the people believe in God is worshipped. You see here that God is forming a new people for himself in holiness. This is what he's after. This is the sign in chapter 3 that God gives Moses. He says, this is going to be a sign for you. When you lead the people out of Israel, they will, you will come back to this mountain and worship. 
and forming a new people for himself. This is what God is after. Making a people designed to live for his glory, to display his character. This is a major part of what is behind the promises that God gave to their forefathers of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And even now, what is happening in the church as God gathers his people, as he forms for himself in Jesus Christ, through his blood, on the cross, he is gathering a people who would worship him before the nations and proclaim that he alone is God. It took a while for Moses, didn't it? To get to a place where he would trust in God, to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. There was God's call upon him. We saw Moses' doubts, and we certainly can identify. And God reminds him, I have it covered. And Moses believes. He learns a lesson that every Christian and every church needs to learn. Fulfilling our call to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth does not depend on, finally, us as a servants, but on God, God's sovereign power. In the process to bring God's people out of Egypt, here, by the end of this chapter, it has begun. The question, though, after Moses and Aaron have already gone to the elders of Israel, and after they begin to believe and as they worship, the question is, what will Pharaoh and the Egyptians do? And there we leave that for future weeks. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> Lord, indeed, we affirm and proclaim that you are our sovereign God, the sovereign creator over all things, and the God who is with us. In that, we can have great confidence. In the fact that you are sovereign, we can have great confidence because we are feeble and weak and sinful. And in the fact that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us, we can have great confidence. Because here we act in the very authority that Christ gives us and we act in the power of his name. Father, we pray that you would grant us boldness to speak your truth. We pray, Lord, that we would speak your truth in all love, in the love of Jesus Christ, winsomely calling those to turn from their sins and believe. That we would go on, as Peter says, to give a reason for the hope that we have and in the confidence in this powerful word here that we have heard today. And Lord, we pray that as we do this, as we take your gospel to the ends of the earth, to those to our neighbors all around us as the nations have come here, Lord, we pray that we would entrust you with the results. We thank you, Lord, that you have more job responsibilities than we do. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>